and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Antonius Smith, and I'm excited to welcome back Daniel DeVise in the second part of two episodes. Daniel DeVise is a journalist, writer, and a graduate of Wesleyan and Northwestern Universities. He has worked at the Washington Post, the Miami Herald, and a multitude of other newspapers in a career spanning 23 years. In 2001, he was the co-recipient of a Team Pulitzer Prize and has acquired over two dozen other national as well as regional awards in journalism. So yeah, he actually, he came to Memphis in 1946 is what I read. He got married to his first. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, he got married to his first wife, Martha, but later on he crashed his boss's tractor in in a barn, and that kind of sparked him to leave. Yeah, um, so he, he, he'd made that first short trip to Memphis. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was in 46, that sounds right, after uh, cracking up the tractor. And, and by his own account, he was just horrified and didn't want to face up. To, and it was like $500 in damage, which he did not have. So he, he, he went to Memphis, stayed there for some months with his cousin Booker. Then he came back and did the right thing and worked. This is why, by the way, by the way, this is why two more years would pass before BB returned. I think he had to earn the $500 to pay for the tractor. And I think he was earning $25 a week. So if you do the math, it would have taken him a while to earn $500, you know, on top of whatever he had to live on. And so he was he was stuck in in Indianola for a couple of years. I don't want to say stuck. I mean, I love the people of Indianola. I love the city. But he he could not leave there. He was sort of under house arrest until he paid off his boss. And yes. this is why it wasn't until I think around March of 49 that he returned. I see. But I really did enjoy reading about when he did return and he worked at WDIA and he did the commercials uh, for the Pepti. What, is, what was that product Pepticon. called? Pepticon. Yeah, Pepticon. Pepticon. Yeah, the, the station owner, one Bert Ferguson, uh, I think had actually developed and patented this elixir as some sort of health remedy. And, you know, these things apparently were all over the, like you could see, um, magazine and radio ads, you know, for these medicinal brews. And mostly, I think they were just like alcohol and cough syrup, you know, but uh, and herbal concoctions. But this was a a rivalry between WDIA and uh, KWEM in West Memphis. Sonny Boy was 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 hawking Hadocall, Hadocall, which was a rival product. And so uh, BB King went on the air with Hepticon and that was his product and and was pitching it and he would he would pitch it and and they would sell it out of the back of a of a flatbed and 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 bb would sit on top of it and play his guitar and uh yeah and then he would gig every night and and take his band all over the tri-state region yes. into arkansas and into mississippi and then he did his show every day and so he had this wonderful sort of cycle of publicity that made him a bigger and bigger uh, celebrity, at least within Memphis and the, and the vicinity. Absolutely. Is this around the time that we learned about the origin of the name of his guitar, Lucille, um, when, when he was gigging yeah. around this time? Right. So interesting fact, I, I, I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles about B.B. King and never did I see B, uh, the, the, the name Lucille in print mm-hmm. up until about 1967. So we have only the account of B.B. himself and, and Sue, his second wife, who was a, who was a wonderful source for me, and his bandmates from that era, such as uh, Ford Nelson, uh, who 
I interviewed and, and who's still alive and Floyd Newman, I asked them and they, they attested that yes, Lucille was known, uh, but, but I think Lucille was a name they just sort of passed around within the band back then. Mm-hmm. He didn't go on stage and say, here's Lucille, you know, <laughs> uh, nobody, I don't think hardly anybody knew of Lucille until much later, but Lucille got her name uh, around 1949, 1950, the date's a little hazy. And Mr. King was in Twist, Arkansas, which is a tiny little settlement named for the white landowners, the Twist family, and was playing at a probably an illicit kind of house party heated by a kerosene, you know, drum. And a fire started. And supposedly the fire uh, was set off by two men fighting. And, and Mr. King ran back inside to fetch his guitar, lest it be burned. And when he came out of there, he said, boy, I'm, I'm going to name my guitar Lucille, because Lucille was the name of the woman who had somehow inspired the fight. The two men were fighting over her. Yeah, if they were fighting over her uh, and caused a great fire, then she must be a really important person. So I guess he took note of her name. And and the, the really interesting thing about Lucille is that... Um, and this, this gets into why I think B.B. King matters so much. Um, you know, the guitar was a backbench instrument. And there were a whole bunch of, of people who'd sort of pioneered playing solos on the guitar. But I don't think that that art of the solo guitar had progressed all that far by the time B.B. King came along. And B.B. King, his, I think his, his unique genius was that in Lucille, he sort of saw his guitar as almost like an alter ego or another human being, um, a woman, you know, and he imagined her singing. And that's a much bigger thing than you'd think because he basically ascribed sort of feminine qualities to the instrument he was playing and sort of imagined that he would sing and then Lucille would sing almost like a Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy thing, you know, like, like, like a ventriloquism act. And just by thinking that way about his guitar, he, I would argue he created sort of a new way of playing the guitar, which was to play the guitar so that it sounded like a human voice. Um, I would argue that none of those great icons of guitar we'd talked about before, T-Bone, Charlie Christian, Django Reinhardt, Lonnie Johnson, I would argue that none of them really played their guitar like a, like a human voice. They played it more like an, a solo instrument, which, mm-hmm. which it was. But B.B. took the whole thing to the next level of, 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 of ascribing sort of human qualities to his guitar and to its sound. And this is where you get this, this human style vibrato, which is much deeper, much richer, and a sound that, that is much more akin to the sound of a human voice. And that was the sound that B.B. That King uh, unleashed. And, and I hear it. I hear that distinctive B.B. King's style, the, the vibrato, the human cry. I hear that in his almost very earliest recordings. I would say as early as 1950, when mm-hmm. he was making his first sides with Sam Phillips in, in, in the Phillips Recording Service studio in Memphis. Uh, if you go back and listen to those Sam Phillips produced B.B. King sides, you hear Lucille very clearly. Yes. And I absolutely want to talk about the influence that Sam Phillips had in those recordings, but... I want to back up for a second and talk about Modern Records and him uh, being signed uh, with the Biharis brothers. And uh, they found Modern Records in 1945. Could you tell us a little bit more about that trajectory? 
Yeah, okay, so the very first recordings that B.B. King made were with a, a label called Bullet with two Ts, which was mm -hmm. out of Nashville. But then I guess it folded or something. And right around that time, and B.B. And King had made this first recording in 49, the Bahari brothers, who were independent record producers out of Los Angeles, out of Watts, they were traveling back and forth to Memphis looking for talent. They were a quote-unquote race label, by which I mean they were a label that specialized and almost exclusively focused on putting out uh, rhythm and blues side by great black artists. And they were looking for new artists. They're kind of like the Chess Brothers, except maybe a little less well-known. But that's a, that's a good analogy. So they wind up in Memphis and they wind up hearing B.B. King. And they are almost the first really to recognize his potential as a recording artist. Now, it may be that they only really saw that he was a celebrity in Memphis and that kind of like somebody with a platform, like a lot of Twitter followers, yes. <laughs> like, the, oh, well, if we put out a record for this guy, it'll sell because he's a radio star. But I, I want to think they, they saw more than that and thought that he had potential, you know, as a singer and guitarist. And so they started making records and Sam Phillips basically provided them his studio to record the sides. And so a, a whole bunch of, of the earliest B.B. Uh, King recordings in 50 and 51 were made with Sam Phillips and only Sam Phillips Epic Controls and the Bahari Brothers uh, releasing them on their modern records label out of Watts. Yes. And and this is it. This next part is interesting because Sam Phillips ultimately, according to his biographer, Peter Goralnik, didn't really see a whole huge amount of promise in B.B. King himself. He ultimately thought that he didn't have, you know, it, you know, sort of that that great unusual breakthrough sound that would sort of catapult, catapult him to stardom. And I think that the error, the rather large error that Sam Phillips committed with B.B. was, I don't think he was listening to his guitar. I think that all he cared about was his voice because, again, nobody gave a darn about guitars in 1950. Mm -hmm. uh, guitars, electric guitars in rhythm and blues combos just did not matter. And so think about the people Sam Phillips did sign, uh, you know, these million dollar quartet guys. They weren't signing them for their guitar playing. They were signing them for their voices and for their sex appeal. And I don't think he saw that B.B. King's voice was a spectacularly different and original voice. Uh, so he, he missed the boat. Um, and ironically, I say ironically because you wouldn't expect this, but the big breakthrough in the recording studio for B.B. King arrived a little later with a single that B.B. cut with the Baharis. And the youngest Bahari brother, I think it was Joe Bahari, was mm -hmm. the one at the controls. And this would be uh, the single known as Three O'Clock Blues, Three O'Clock in the Morning Blues, mm. uh, which was recorded in the Black uh, YMCA in Memphis uh, in 1951. And I would give credit to B.B. himself, first and foremost, in, in, in giving equal equal time, basically, equal weight to his guitar and to his voice, because that recording, which you can dial up on YouTube right now if you want to, it features his guitar and his voice equally. Um, and I, I want to say B.B. himself was the one who, who probably pushed Joe to feature his guitar. And, and Joe himself, to his credit, didn't intervene. He said, okay, well, we'll make this side the way you want it to sound. And I think Sam Phillips had simply missed it. He just didn't, didn't see... <laughs> how important the guitar was going to be in a few more years when Chuck Berry, you know, and Bo Diddley arrived. Mm, yeah, he definitely missed that. Missed um, the boat. Yeah, he did. 
But BB formed a he formed a really good relationship with a lot of super well-known musicians around the time, like uh, Ike Turner and Willie Dixon and Elvis Presley. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk about Ike and, and Elvis. Um, Ike Turner was from Clarksdale, right? And I was just recently there. Mm-hmm. And he was from a family of a little more means. So he actually played the piano because remember, you had to have money to have a piano. Mm-hmm. And he played the piano when he was coming up. And so by the time he met B.B. King, he was this precocious, you know, like teenager who mm-hmm. was already on the radio, you know, like you being a DJ and was performing. And, and I think he had a couple of bands and he was an extraordinary guitarist and an extraordinary pianist and just could do it all. Um, and they ran into each other a couple different times. And eventually, B.B. Uh, uh, invited Ike to go record for Sam Phillips. And that's what happened. And Ike showed up, you know, like that weekend. And B.B. made this happen. B.B. King is responsible for this recording session, which yielded a song that a lot of people say is the first rock and roll song, which is Rocket... 88. Rocket 88. Thank you. I almost said I, there's a club with a different number, Rocket something else. <laughs> <laughs> Rocket 88, yeah. Um, so B.B. deserves some credit for that. And then uh, also, just by bizarre, I won't say it's chance, because Ike Turner got around and was very ambitious. It was Ike Turner who played the piano on that 3 o'clock blues recording Mm. that became B.B.'s first number one hit. And Mm. Joe Bahari, when he heard Ike playing some rhythm that could go with him, that's exactly the sound I want, he said. Fire the piano, let's get this guy. And so (laughs) Ike Turner winds up playing on that single. Um, What I was going to say about uh, Elvis is that B.B. had had known Elvis. They'd met, you know, early on. And I, I want to say uh, B.B. Had, had visited Elvis at the Sun Studios probably near the beginning of, of Elvis's career when he was more a country performer than anything else. People forget this, but Elvis's first TV appearances and radio appearances were pretty much in the country idiom. He wasn't really regarded as a rock and roller. Yeah, uh, at, at first he was seen as a country guy. Think of like Johnny Cash in the early years or uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, Elvis was more cut out of that mold. It was only later, a year or two later, that he became the rock and roller. But uh, And and B.B., I think, resented the massive fame that came Elvis's way when he, in, in B.B.'s view, basically just took rhythm and blues music and, and whiteified it and called it rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't blame Elvis for this, but he blamed the music industry, I think, and the listeners for catapulting Elvis to massive fame, you know, playing Hound Dog, uh, singing Hound Dog, which is, uh, what's her name? William Big Mama Thornton? Yeah, Big Mama Thornton's song. Uh, And she she was from Duke Records in Houston, which is a a black record, black-owned black record label. Uh, And and, and, yeah, and I think think B.B. resented that. But he always loved Elvis, uh, Elvis himself. And so Elvis came to Memphis and attended the Christmas time Goodwill Review held by WDIA. Uh, I think it was around Christmas, I think of 56. I might be wrong, it might have been 55. So Elvis mm. shows up and it's in like the amphitheater there and everybody's there and it's like a 99.8% African-American crowd. And then Elvis turns up and he can't go and perform because um, his the colonel wouldn't allow it. But dig this, um, Elvis's first singles were number one on both the white and the black charts. Now, for a white person to top the black charts was a huge deal. I mean, that meant this was really good stuff, mm-hmm. you know, 
because there was enormous, I mean, I, I see the competition as being much fiercer on the, on the rhythm and blues charts just because the music was better, right? <laughs> so for Elvis to top the rhythm and blues charts was a huge deal. And, and so they, they saw him and, and everybody starts screaming and they just go crazy in this auditorium. Um, but they, then they yanked Elvis off stage and he, and he retreated to the wings and he met BB and there's a famous picture taken that night by Ernest Withers, the great Memphis photographer, a p picture of B.B. King posing next to Elvis. And you could tell it was, it was a, the aura there is of mutual respect and admiration. Um, and and B.B. Uh, liked that Elvis would call him sir and was respectful toward him because Elvis knew how important B.B. King was. Um, and that meant something to him, you know? Yeah, for sure. And after, uh, around this time actually, and maybe not specifically after this time, but around this time when he was at Modern and he talked to Willie Dixon, was it? Because he was thinking about changing record labels because of you know, renegotiating yeah, with... Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. Um, he, he, every few years his contract would come up and he would always set off a little bit of a, a sort of a polite bidding war because he always was thinking of leaving Modern Records. And the reason he was... So I will say on the on the plus column, the people at Modern Records didn't mess with him. They would let him record the songs the way he wanted to, and and BB King was you know a musical genius uh, like a Miles Davis, and so that was a smart move because BB mm -hmm. knew what he wanted his songs to sound like. And every one of the singles he recorded, with with a few exceptions in the fifties, I think are works of genius. They're incredible recordings, uh, wonderfully produced. Um, often with arrangements by, what's his name, the wonderful arranger, I'm not going to, Maxwell Davis, mm. Maxwell Davis, who was a, a, a brilliant arranger, and just gorgeous sounding recordings. And that was, that was the Bahari Brothers getting out of the way and letting B.B. do what he could do. Um, but on the negative side, um, they would apparently only pay B.B. like a flat upfront advance on each of his releases, and he seems never to have to have reaped any actual royalties, even when his songs would sell huge, they would only pay him the one time for them. And then they, the Bahari brothers, would pocket, you know, unearned, unearned shares of the royalties mm -hmm. because they would append their own names as composers of the song. Uh, they'd use pseudonyms, um, not Bihari, but they would be Ling or Jose, these weird names. And so they would get some royalties as composers of the songs, which they hadn't composed. Now, let me hasten to add, B.B. hadn't composed the songs either in a lot of cases. I mean, he did compose some of them, uh, a lot of them, but a lot of them were, were just blues songs written by other people. And this wasn't just B.B. and modern records. Uh, artists would always be appropriating each other's songs, mm -hmm. borrowing them, redoing them, usually, generally without compositional credit. So there was a lot of fast and loose accounting. But B.B. was certainly uh, robbed of a lot of money. He sued about you know 10 years after he left the label and i don't know that the terms were made public but he apparently recovered his compositional credits at least and probably some money as well he was always considering leaving modern records but you know i i said there's a comparison to be drawn between modern records with the baharis and chess records with the chess mm. brothers and willie willie dixon who was this genius songwriter at chess who's who wrote seems like most of the great blues songs of the 50s he wrote uh, he wrote hundreds of songs, and he apparently warned, warned off BB and said, "Don't, don't come here, man. You know, the, <laughs> uh, the remuneration is not what it could be." Um, 
And so he warned BB off of going to chess records. It would have been just the same thing all over again of not mm -hmm. getting proper credit, not getting proper income, not getting proper royalties. So he stays at, at, at Modern Records to the end of the decade and a little bit beyond. He finally moves over to a real major label, um, ABC Paramount. And I think that the contract was inked in 61. And this would be at the, at the powerful urging of Fats Domino, who I believe, uh, I can't remember if Fats Domino was on ABC Paramount. I think he was on Imperial. But anyway, I think he might have been negotiating his own move to ABC. And I think, wasn't Ray Charles also on that label before he moved over to, um, Goodness gracious, I, I'm, I, I have old age disease here. I can't remember <laughs> the different labels, but uh, I think that I think that Ray Charles was also on ABC Paramount. So mm -hmm. he was in good company when he went to that label. And that was when he finally left the indies and moved up to the major labels. And while BB signed to, uh, well, yeah, after he signed to ABC, Modern still kept trying to undercut them by putting out simultaneous releases. <laughs> Yeah. Now, we don't know, but there might have been some kind of secret deal made there because I think that it turned out that ABC had actually recorded BB while he still was technically under contract mm. to Modern. So it, you could kind of picture two people getting together over cocktails and deciding, OK, well, you can keep releasing your BB King product you know, for a few more years. I don't know what all happened, but BB King releases did continue to come out. And in fact, if you're a record hound, and you're interested in this, I would urge you to go to Discogs, Discogs, which is the record collector website, and look for nice. a copy of The Jungle. The Jungle was a collection of a long player put out by Modern Records in 1967. And it collects a whole bunch of the really wonderful singles that Modern Records put out after B.B. King had left that label for the major label. And I say this because B.B. <laughs> King's first few years with the major label were dreadful they still didn't think he was a guitarist. Um, I told you Sam Phillips didn't see it. The people at ABC didn't see it either. Nobody seemed to think this man was a guitarist. So they, they assigned him to these, they put him with the Ray Charles Orchestra and he did, he was crooning and doing these big band numbers. And if you heard them now, I mean, you'd be amazed. They had probably the most important guitarist in pop music on their roster. And they, they even hired a different person to play guitar on one of the records. I mean, it was absurd. So God bless Modern Records for continuing to put out these fabulous B.B. King guitar blues songs, which they did. And one of them, which is uh, Rock Me Baby, first of all, made it, into the, made it into the repertoire of one James Marshall Hendrix and became an important song in the sort of set list of Jimi Hendrix as he was coming into his own. And it also made it over to Britain and became the breakthrough song for B.B. King to become big in England, because by the end of the 60s, he was a god in Britain. And it all started with this modern record single that came out a couple years after B.B. had left the label, uh, Rock Me Baby. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was so much going on around this time. Um, there was a song particularly from 1969, I believe, that became his monumental song. It's a small song called The Thrill Is Gone. I don't know if you ever heard <laughs> that. Well, so... I can walk you up to there from where we were. So where we were in the early mid sixties is that BB was making these dreadful big band horrors mm -hmm. for ABC Paramount. They were squandering him, wasting his talent. They had no idea who they had. Um, the first relief came in the form of uh, Johnny Pate, who was a great black producer who came in and came up with the idea 
of of putting BB in a in a in a concert setting and recording him live, which which God bless Johnny Pate and BB for figuring out that they could do this and that ABC <laughs> would put it out, even though it wasn't a big band. And then that's how we get Live at the Regal, which came out around the end of 64, beginning of 65. And it was a modest hit, but much more important, it just turned things around for BB because it that that recording had legs and started circulating among all of these young white and black rock and blues guitarists all over America and Britain. And it goes to like Mick Fleetwood, who's starting is about to start a group called Fleetwood Mac. And it goes to a young Carlos Santana, who's a teenage guitarist from Tijuana. And it reaches the hands of all these people who listen to it and, and just say, wow, my God, is this guy an amazing guitarist. And so from there, over a year or two, the people at ABC Paramount finally figure out that they've got a phenomenal guitarist on their hands. And so they record another, I would say, even better live record called Blues is King, which is this fabulous, powerful live blues recording. And then they hire a, a young, I would say, 23, 25-year-old white producer named Bill Simzik, who, who volunteers because he's basically just this young guy who's heard BB's guitar playing and says, this guy's amazing. And he says, can I please produce a BB King record? And they say, sure, we don't care. They, they didn't, again, they didn't know what they had. So Bill Simzik begins to produce a succession of recordings that basically usher B.B. King's recorded work into the modern era, basically. Um, and, you know, the crown jewel of those recordings is the song The Thrill Is Gone. And The Thrill Is Gone is one of four or five different separate but interrelated things that cause B.B. to go from being a superstar in the segregated black rhythm and blues genre to being basically a global superstar for everybody of every race and every country and every language. Um, the first thing that happens to kind of, the word crossover is way too simple, but to, 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 to create that journey uh, of ascent is that he plays at the Fillmore, which is this white hippie palace in San Francisco. And B.B. King plays there one night in 67. And it's almost literally the first time he's ever played to a white audience almost literally the first time. And it was kind of like his sort of coming out party to his introduction to the broader swath of white music fans, most of whom had heard of him, but had never seen him and didn't know who he was. They just knew he was the guy who had inspired all of their favorite white guitar guys. And, they, and the more knowledgeable among them knew that he was also the inspiration for their favorite black blues guitarists, men like Albert King and, and um, Buddy Guy. Both of those men, to their credit, Albert King and Buddy Guy, both went around preaching the gospel of B.B. King. So, uh, and, then, and then comes The Thrill is Gone, and then B.B. King goes on tour with the Rolling Stones as an opening act, and that introduces him to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of, of white and black fans who didn't know his work very well. He goes on Johnny Carson, he goes on Ed Sullivan, and he goes on Ralph Gleason's television show, Jazz Casual, I think it was called, which airs in, on public television all over the country. So yeah, by the end of the 60s, he is a superstar uh, full stop in America, not, not just in the segregated rhythm and blues market, but, but everywhere. And he's also a, a sort of a figure of growing international renown. Daniel DeVise is the author of The King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, which is published by Grove Press. I'm Antonius Smith. 
and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee 38111. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library and Information Center. All rights reserved.